Deuteronomy 6.23. Now, <clears throat> before we get started, um, just to let you know that if you are a note taker, and I hope you're a note taker, and in fact, um, Elaine, lift up that wonderful Bible with that Bible toting bag you got it in there. See that? That's old school right there. I love that. That's analog Bible right there. That's, that's got paper pages, probably got some pens and highlights. Is that Bible all messed up yeah, with the markings yeah. and everything? Thank you, Jesus. That's good, man. I like note takers. But if we go quick, and we might go quick today, um, and there's a lot of verses. There, you, oftentimes, I don't use a whole lot of verses, but I do have more than my quota of four verses today, so I apologize in advance. And, but you, you, you miss them. You don't get them all. All you have to do is uh, let me know. I, all I need is either your email or your textifying um, phone number, and I can text you the outline. Really easy. Yes, yeah, so you can get those any, at any time. They're available on request for a small fee <laughs> of simply asking. That's all it is. All right. The two faces of Jesus. This is part six. Mark, we're rolling. We're good? Yep. Excellent. Now what? Boy, we've covered a lot of ground. That's the question. Now what? Where do we go from here? Um, the scene is the, the former slaves of, uh, of uh, Egypt have all died off in the wilderness. Their children are now standing before Moses, and he's rehearsing the past 40 years, the deliverance out of Egypt. They're about to cross over at Kadesh Barnea and enter into the promised land. So he's going over everything that has happened. Now, the theme of this, the two faces of Jesus, have to do with the fact that all of these things that happened, especially this story of the deliverance of the slaves in their transition from, from slavery under Pharaoh to nationhood under under God, is really a tremendous drama that was played out to show you and I how Jesus brought us out from sin in order to bring us in to God's purposes in the kingdom of God. So Moses is standing there and he's addressing, going over everything that's happened, the people before they enter the, the land, so they have all this in their head. <clears throat> and this verse, I love this verse, it just, just quantifies the whole thing, the message is right there. And Moses says to the people, God brought us out from there so that he might bring us in in order to give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. So God moves in two phases. He brings you out in order to bring you in. Don't ever think that because you've been brought out of a bad situation, it automatically situates you in a good situation. Uh, ending a bad decision doesn't necessarily mean that you've automatically entered a good decision. God uh, doesn't bring you in to his kingdom simply by bringing you out. There's this, these two steps, and we've gone all over this, and how that they went through the wilderness, a trek that should have taken 40 days is drawn out to 40 years for a specific reason. Well, during this time, God facilitates the deliverance of the his, his people, the, the descendants of Abraham, because of his covenant with Abraham, they're in slavery now. He brings them out, and 
he brings them into the land that he had formerly given to Abraham. It's been 400 years since they've been in that land. It's, it's called the promised land. He facilitates this great deliverance through the means of a Savior. In fact, it's two Saviors, Moses and Joshua. God uses one Savior to pastor them through this one period, and then he transitions because that one Savior is not going to be adequate for the new temperament and the new focus that they're going to need because they're now going to enter into the land. They need a different kind of a leader. So they go from having a mother in Moses to having a leader or a commander because they're going to go from having God do everything for them and in very wonderful, miraculous ways into doing what God's told them to do to take possession of the land and the Lord will work through them. So they go from God working for them to God working through them. And that transition requires a different type of leader. Jesus spans both these leaders. Both Moses and Joshua are represented in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of these two pastors. He's our shepherd. We have both the, the mothering Moses, hallelujah, and uh, with the miracle signs and wonders and supernatural provisions, and not that those ended under Joshua, but in Joshua, we've got the one who's leading us as we go in obedience to do what God's called us to do, and we see him work through us. Now, God took the descendants of Abraham from being the slave labor force for the pharaohs of Egypt into becoming a mighty nation. That's quite a transformation if you think about it. In one generation, it went from being the slave labor force, to being a nation that was envied and feared. Now that they're in, they've crossed over. They're now in the promised land. Here it is, the land flowing with milk and honey. What now? That really is the question. Now that we're here, what does God now have? Because there is the temptation to say, we've arrived. We're here. This is it. Let's go fight these battles. Let's take these cities. Let's settle this land. And we're now a mighty nation. And we're just going to get our heads wrapped around that and do that. But after all that God had done in bringing them out of slavery and bringing them into the promised land, they had not yet arrived. Not according to God's purpose and plan for them. They had not yet arrived. Because the decision to serve God was still left as a choice on the table for them to take hold of and make. They were not automatically serving God just because they had entered into the promised land. Now that they had entered in, they're in. Just as much as we are, have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. We're in. But the, the church ought to be asking the question, now what? And every Christian ought to be asking the question every day, every week, now what? What do you have for me? God brought them in the promised land for a reason, to serve God in that land. Not just to live as God's blessed people, but to take up the purpose of God, to seek Him generation by generation, and to serve the Lord. So, that choice was there, and they... They had to make it. And as long as Joshua was alive, they pretty much <clears throat> had made that choice and continued to make it. This is what Joshua said to them many years later. Joshua was, I think, 
I'm not sure. I know Caleb was 80. I'm, I'm guessing Joshua was up there in age when they entered the land. Joshua lived to be 110, and it, as he was an old man, his last address to Israel, he has them assembled out in front of him, just like Moses had them years before in front of him. And he's giving them this address. Listen to what Joshua says to them. You crossed this Jordan. You came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites fought with you, but I handed them over to you. I sent terror ahead of you to drive out before you the two Amorite kings. I gave you the victory. It was not by your swords or bows. I gave you a land in which you had not worked hard. You took up residence in cities that you did not build. You were eating the produce of vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now obey the Lord and serve Him with integrity and loyalty. Put aside the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If you have no desire to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve, whether it be the gods of your ancestors uh, that they served beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you've now entered. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And that's how he ended up his address. He rehearsed all of that. And like the old Bob Dylan song, got to serve somebody. And that's true in life. Even when you don't think you're serving anybody, you're serving somebody. So he says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So what Joshua does is he reasserts before them. The whole reason for you being in this land and being a nation is to serve God. Not just because God saw the injustice of slavery and wanted to bring you out. Boy, that's a message it would preach today. Let me tell you, there's a word in there for, for the, the issues, uh, the meaningless, in many cases, uh, misdirected issues that people are struggling and fighting over today. God didn't deliver you because of the injustice of slavery. He delivered you for a purpose, and that is to bring you into the land to serve Him. That's what God is concerned with is that you serve him. So he brought you out in order to facilitate that purpose. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So God had set them up as a holy nation whose purpose it was to be his living introduction to the other nations of the world. And that was their purpose, and he was refocusing them on that purpose. As you're in this land, as you are building your vineyards, expanding your homes, and having your children... Living your lives, that's wonderful. That's what God wants you to do. Live your life, have a good life, have a happy life. But as you live your life, do it as unto the Lord. Serve the Lord, seek the Lord, live unto the Lord. That's what he was saying to Israel. That's the secret of entering the land and the purpose of it. However, Israel's national history became pockmarked with periods of infectious backsliding. And their relationship with God got stuck in the revolving door between periods of miraculous blessing and deliverance 
and periods of terrible judgment and backsliding. And so Israel's history really, by the time Jesus came, was, could be referred to as almost a tragic history when compared to God's purpose for originally bringing them into the land. Um, so if you haven't studied the Old Testament, studied the kings, studied the development of Israel, I would really encourage you to do that. There's, a, there's great lessons in there. And the bottom line is the ultimate lesson of the promised land is that serving God is the key to its blessing. There was no way that they could be blessed just because they were in the right place that God had ordained them to be in. And many times we make the mistake of thinking, if I'm where God wants me, then everything's going to be fine. God brought me here after all. The Lord delivered me after all. The Lord gave me this job after all. The Lord put me in this family after all. But just being where God has brought you or where he's put you does not mean that you are going to prosper or have God's blessings. There is still a decision on the table, and you have to take that decision. You have to renew that decision, and you have to live that decision every day. And that decision is to serve the Lord. And we're going to get into the practical issue of what does it mean to serve the Lord this morning. But let me fast forward now. All of that happened in the Old Testament. It was a magnificent drama that was played out for the purpose of showing us the spiritual transformation that would take place when Jesus would deliver sinners from slavery to sin and bring them into the holy land of sonship with God. So Jesus is the holy land, the promised land of the New Testament. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, the Bible says, but you, you who are born again, you are saved, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, here it is, you are a holy nation. So I don't know how many nations there are on the face of the earth, but I know there's one more nation on the face of the earth than that which all the socio-political surveyors have counted, and it's that holy nation of the kingdom of God. Amen. And everyone that has entered into it because Jesus has called them in and they've welcomed that invitation. So he says, you are a holy nation a people for God's own possession, so that you can proclaim, and the King James says, show forth, or I like to say shine forth, because Jesus said we are the light of the world. You're a holy nation so that you can proclaim and shine forth the excellencies, the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So you see the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament example, that God's brought us out from many places, from many different tongues and languages and cultures and backgrounds, and he's brought us into this one nation called the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus, whether high-born or whether low-born, whether rich or poor, whether Asian or African or European, or regardless of descent, or national identification, or culture. There is one nation and one kingdom to which we all belong, and that is the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, He is reigning, hallelujah. And God's brought us into that place 
And we are a holy nation. We were not a people, but now we are a people. Hallelujah. The Bible says in this world we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are walking, talking, mobile embassies. Hallelujah. And think about an embassy. People run to embassies to find free ground, to find deliverance. That's a whole other message, but think about it. This morning, the embassy doors are open in this embassy today. Hallelujah. Of the kingdom of God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So Jesus brought us out of bondage to sin into the sonship with God and into citizenship in his kingdom. So I ask you, as Joshua put before the people of Israel, the newly minted nation, then I say to you today, now that you're in, the question is still on the table. Will you go on and serve the Lord so that he can honor you? For your service, or will you simply live your life with his blessing and go no further? And that's the question today that ought to be being put before Christians all throughout our culture, all throughout our nation, throughout the world. That question should be brought before Christian people. Now that you're in, now what? What are you going to do? God still has a purpose, and that's for you to go on and to serve the Lord. Serve Him. You probably are sitting there thinking, well, I don't think I'm called to be a pastor. I really can't imagine myself doing... See, we think that it's a job, a profession like being in the ministry, being a pastor or something like that, or a Christian teacher, evangelist, missionary, whatever. But you, you're a sharp group today. You probably know that that's not the case, that that your life is the opportunity to serve God wherever it is. So, you know, that is really what serving God is all about. I get to get a little bit ahead of myself. So understand, that's the question. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, and interesting, this is in the book of Hebrews, a New Testament epistle that was written to Jewish believers. They had that inculcated in their mind, that, old, that pattern of having been brought out and brought in. And so the author writes to the Hebrew believers and he says in chapter 6 and verse 1, Therefore, let's leave the elementary basic doctrine of Christ and go on. Everyone say go on. And go on to maturity. Now when he says leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he's not saying abandon the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's saying let's Build upon that. Let's rise up. Let's, let, there is more. We should be asking the question, okay, I know I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm going to church. Got a Bible. And, you know, my family and I do their devotions and I pay tithes. <laughs> you know, that's right. We've got the boxes all checked off. Now what? Now what? Um, there is an entire world that needs the work of God. And God's got a lot of work that needs to be done. And we have tremendous resource sitting in the body of Christ, and they're not asking, now what? And so we need to ask, now what, Lord? Let's go on. Paul is urging. Matter of fact, if you, with this view, if you read the New Testament, you'll find throughout the epistles that all the apostles wrote, there is this constant tugging and urging and pulling. Let's go on. Let's move on. Let's go on. Let's reach out. Let's serve the Lord. In fact, it could be argued that from the book of Acts on to the book of Revelation, 
there is just one giant exhortation and pull upon Christian people. Serve the Lord. He's pulling on us just like Joshua was pulling on them thousands of years ago. Let me say this to you that our Heavenly Father delights to honor and reward those that serve Jesus. He's not looking for functionaries. He's got them. They're called angels. God's called you to be more than a functionary. But serving God is waiting before you, and all of you are called to get in and move in it. Jesus in the Gospel of John said this in chapter 12 and 26. If anyone serves me, he must continue to follow me. It's not just, oh, I followed Jesus into salvation. Oh, now I followed him into a decent church. And, uh, you know, I follow him on Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, when we need to pray, follow Jesus. But he says, if anyone serves me, he must continue to follow me. And wherever I am, there will my servant be also glued to me. Stuck to me like an like a appendage. You can't shake him off. And if anyone serves me, him will my father honor. Him will my father honor. Every time Jesus calls us into discipleship, there's always with it his loving promise of a reward. I want to reward you. I want to honor you. It's not that he's buying laborers. It's that he wants to bless those who serve him because, well, we'll get into it in a few minutes, but it has to do with God's ultimate purpose for creating us. He wants to show his goodness and his mercy and pour out his blessing on those that put him first and serve his purposes. There's another verse that talks about God honoring and God rewarding us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it says, No one can lay another foundation other than the one that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone, and let me say, if any one of you or me builds on the foundation with gold and silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will be made manifest for the day, referring to that day of, of the Lord's coming and the day of judgment, will disclose that work because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now let me say that when he talks about the fire testing the work, we can get visions of hell and judgment, but that's not the fire he's talking about. He's talking about God's fiery gaze. There can no lie stand before him. His vision just burns through every statement and every work and sifts it for truth and for content. So the fire he's talking about is coming into examination before the living God. That's the fire. Hallelujah. And it burns up everything that is wood, hay, or straw. Everything that's earthly, just But the diamonds and the gold and the precious stones, guess what those things are? Those things are every decision you ever made in your life that was in agreement with God's will. Every time you said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Every time you, you went and did something as unto the Lord, it might have been for an earthly boss, or it might have been for somebody who wasn't a Christian and somebody that didn't seem to uh, uh, you know, have any significance, but everything you did as unto the Lord, 
is that precious, precious material that will endure that fire of examination. So Paul says, be careful what you build on that foundation because everyone's work will be tested. And if it survives that fire of examination, you will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, wood, hay, and stubble, in other words, I got saved, but then I just spent my life just living selfishly for myself, didn't really ever do anything that amounted to anything in the kingdom of heaven, had any eternal consequence, then he says, if anyone's works are burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So he's saying, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're going to go to heaven. They will, they will not suffer hell. They will not be rejected. They will not be cast out. But they will be saved by fire because the work in them is their faith in God, trusting Jesus as their Savior. And that's going to get them there. The Lord's not kicking them out of the land. He's not kicking them out of the kingdom. But sadly, there's no works. There's no serving God. I got saved, but I never served God. Now, I kind of think there's not going to be too many people like that who are in with absolutely nothing. But there may be more than you might think. And finally, at the very end of the Bible is that last chapter in Revelation chapter 22, where Jesus says at the very end, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Isn't that awesome? I come quickly, my reward is with me to give to every man according as he works. All right, now let's talk about the practical thing. We've got a couple of minutes here. Let's talk about how does God want us to serve him? If we're to serve God, how do we do that? How do we serve God? The question, the answer to that question of how we serve God needs to be uh, understood by looking at the twofold purpose for why God created us. So as we think about how do I serve God, let's go to the very core of our existence and say, well, what did God create us for in the first place? And the book of Ephesians starts out in the first chapter and just lays out why God made mankind. And I want to pick a little section that gives us the two-sided or two-fold purpose for our creation. Beginning in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even, now here, here's where you want to pay attention, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Bingo, there's the first purpose. In love, He predestined us to be His children. According to the purpose of His will and to the praise of the glory of His grace. There's the second purpose. Glory. That we should be to the glory of God's grace with which He blessed us in Jesus the Beloved. So here are the two purposes for our creation. If you ever say, what's my life for? What's the purpose of all of this? Number one, mankind was made and designed by love for love. We were built for love. We were designed around love. The love of God, agape, 
We were designed by agape. That's why we are redeemable. That's why when man fell in sin, he could be redeemed because he was his whole design is designed to respond to love. And so mercy could save mankind and man could turn his heart to the Lord and love the Lord again. And that was the whole thing that makes us redeemable. So we're designed to have fellowship with God in love. And the second purpose is we are designed are called to shine, to radiate, that's what glory means, to radiate God's character and God's personality. So we're, we're created to love, fellowship with God in love, and we're created to show forth His glory. He wants to shine through us. Because that's what love does. Love has children and pours everything into its children and causes its children to be great like it's great through the love with which love created those children. His metaphors get a little out of hand. But, but at any rate, um, all right, so practically, here's how this happens. We're designed to love God. We're designed to fellowship with Him. We're designed to radiate His glory. So how do you serve God? You're going to leave here in a few minutes, and you're going to begin your new week. How will you serve God this week? Um, number one, there's three of these. I just go by them quickly. Number one, the first thing, learn, know, and walk in the truth. Number one, learn the Bible, know the Word of God, and walk in the truth. Walk in, learn, know, and walk in the truth. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So what's number one? Learn, know, and walk in the truth of the scripture. Don't rely on just going to church where somebody else knows the scripture. <laughs> because when you get into a mess on Wednesday or on Thursday and the enemy is eating your lunch and you don't know how to pray or how to deal with him, you've got no sword to fight him with. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. You reach into that sheath and out comes a rubber knife. The devil's not going to leave you alone. He responds to the word. In fact, Jesus himself resisted the devil with the word of God. Behold, Satan, it is written. He didn't say, do you know who I am? Do you know what church I belong to? Do you, do you realize who you're messing with? The devil could care less. It means nothing to him. But once you confront him with the word, he cannot resist the word of God. So learn, know, and walk in the truth. You know how that Jesus said in John 8, if you abide, if you live, if you abide in my word, then you will truly be my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will work for you. It'll set you free. All right, number two, the second thing you do to serve God. Once you develop a habit of learning, knowing, and living the truth, number two, you serve God by set your affections above. Redirect the things that you love. Now, if you're a lusty person such as myself, I use that in the old English sense of the word, don't. In other words, I'm not a dull individual. I'm not a person who sits around and has absolutely no interest in anything. 
you know, just dull. I, I like the world I live in. I enjoy this planet God made. I see all kinds of things that I love. I get involved in all sorts of things. Let's stay away from sin. But, um, you know, I enjoy things. And, and I, God has made us inquisitive. He's made us to manage, to rule, and to reign. So the, the thing, the task for us is, do we allow our heart and our affections to be completely taken up with the pursuits of and even good things, family, profession, personal development, those things are all important. But there's something that is literally indispensable. You cannot live without it, and that is serving God. Amen. And if you let the love of other things become equal to that, God will not play the adulterer. He is not going to play that game. He just won't. He will not live with you in competition with other things. You are going to have to seek first the kingdom and put him first. So Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, if you were raised up with Christ, or we could say if you've entered the land, if Joshua brought you in, Jesus brought you into the land, now that you're in, therefore, if you be raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Everyone say above. above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above. Now, I know that that's hard work for some people. Some people hate to think. They like to be entertained, but they don't want to. They, the only thinking they do is to respond to whatever information's flowing out to them. But when he says think about things above, he's talking about mentally pursuing. The discipline, getting into the word and pursuing and developing a comprehension and an understanding of the heavenly places, your relationship with God, starting to develop an appetite and an understanding for those concepts that talk about our relationship with God and that covenant and meditate on it. You know, we led, I led a very powerful church back in the 70s and 80s during a period of time in history where people, by and large, Christians came into the kingdom. They were just naturally hungry and thirsty for the truth. It was the prominent feature of the church. The prominent feature of the church back then wasn't music like it is today. Today it's, you know, being moved on and entertained, you know, by, by atmosphere and by music and all that. But that's because of the culture of the day. But in that day, people just naturally came hungry. Boy, I'll tell you, they'd walk through ice and snow and everything just to get to the word. So you, we couldn't shovel the word into people fast enough. And they were inhaling it. You know, when you pastored back then, you really had to run to keep up with people because your congregation would run you right over. They were all a bunch of preachers. Everybody's prophesying. Everybody's, you know, in the Word. Everyone's studying. You could not put it on coast and just roll, you know. Um, your church would just run off. So, um, at any rate, set your affection on things above. Develop that mindset of thinking about the things above. Ask yourself the question this morning, am I serving God by setting my mind on the things that are above? Here, number three. The third thing you need to do if you're going to serve God is be a shining witness. Being a shining witness means that you're not just a silent witness. You are letting your light shine, the effulgence, the outflowing. In other words, the world around you is going to know that Jesus is Lord. You let people know that he is Lord. You are bold and expressive about it. Um, you don't leave it to the professionals. 
It's like my kids said one time when they were growing up, oh, he's a professional Christian. I know, we were talking about something, and that was how, that's what came to their mind as they were thinking, well, he's a professional Christian. I thought that was really kind of a funny way of looking at it. You know, they saw bona fide believers as a professional Christian. But uh, obviously that's what all of us are supposed to be. Philippians 2.15 says that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Are you shining in this crooked generation? You can't just sit there and watch Fox News all week long or whatever your, your, your flavor is, um, and just sit there and let the world dictate to you whether they're open or not to the gospel. You are the one with the authority. You have the most high God in you. You need to shine. Put that gospel out there. Let me tell you what, they haven't designed people yet that can overthrow the effect of the gospel. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Let me tell you what, there are still hardcore atheists that are falling before Jesus every day, getting saved, getting, you know, I, I just, I mean, people that are just so deep and lost in sin that uh, even the devil forgot where they were. They're getting saved, God's calling them out. It just takes people that are willing to shine. We shared that verse before, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. You're a chosen generation, holy nation, that you should show forth or shine forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you've become a Christian, you are, consider yourself a believer. What now? You must ask yourself the question, what now? Know the word, set your affection above, and then shine. Go out, shine. Shine deliberately. It's called deliberate living. Let your light shine to others so that they may see your good works, Jesus said in Matthew 5. Here is our altar call this morning. I'm not going to pound this any longer. I think the horse is dead. Um, but we're going to have an altar call this morning, and we already had part one. Part one was if you don't know Jesus, if he's not Lord of your life, then you are still living in darkness. And uh, come Come to Jesus now. Let him bring you out of bondage and bring you into the freedom of sonship with God. We've had that altar call. and Praise God for that decision that was made to, to bring Jesus into your life. But here's the second part of the altar call we're going to do right now. If you're a Christian, then the kingdom of God is within you. And <clears throat> that means that your life is an opportunity to serve God. You don't have to go looking for an opportunity to serve God. Your life, such as it is, is the opportunity to serve God. I, I wish I could say more about that, but please just, I pray that you just get that. And you have the opportunity to serve God right where you're at. And so there now is a decision. This is a decision that you need to make now, and you need to renew it throughout your life continually. Because Satan works daily to push you off of this purpose every single day to serve God. He works every day to push you in to that mindset of this is my work, this is my job, this is my family, these are my issues. And every day the devil tries to shovel you back into bed 
with a mindset that my life is all this stuff that I was just caught up in. And so every day you need to renew yourself. I am a servant of the Most High God. I am serving God. And have that mentality and renew that decision because the Lord is not going to automatically just make that decision work in your life. Take hold of it. Fight the fight of faith. Take hold of that decision deliberately and the Lord will reward you. He will bless you. The Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Jesus has a tremendous future and eternity for us, for all of us. And also in this lifetime, that wonderful hundredfold return that the Lord said, I'll bless you. I want the world to see that you and I are walking hand in hand. When you serve me, I want the world to see that you are serving the living God. And I want to set you apart. I want to reward you by letting the world see I'm working with this guy. I'm working with this girl. Amen? Amen. Uh, that's one of the big rewards is to, is to be, have God working with you. Amen. You know, they, they bring these new guys into the White House. Now this is your job. And oh, they give their speech. It's a great honor. I'm just so honored that I have this job. Well, God says, I'm going to give you a job, and I'm going to work with you. Wow, that's an honor. See, he's rewarding. He's honoring you. Here's a closing thought. 110 years old, Joshua has led the children of Israel throughout the promised land. They've served God in the land. And Joshua has many, many years behind him of serving the Lord, a lifetime of serving God. And yet at 110 years old, the last thing he says before he goes off and dies is, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So here he is after already serving the Lord with his family. He knows he's about to die. And yet he drives that stake out in front of him. And he says, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Ever putting it in front of him for his wife and children to remember and, and his family before him. He is the quintessential um, example of why we are in the promised land. We never lose sight of before us is the opportunity to serve God. And that's what I get up for every single day. That's what you ought to get up for every day to serve the Lord. No, if, no matter what you do for a living, you serve God right where you're at. You know, if the Lord yanked everybody out of all the jobs they had and the places they lived, who'd be there to do the who'd be there to do the real work of the ministry? The real work of the ministry is to be among the people of the world and shine. Amen. Let's stand together. This altar call is an opportunity to renew that decision. Take that decision. If this morning you've listened to the message, you said, you know. I've listened to the pastor today, and I have not really had the mentality that I'm serving God. I've kind of let that slip. I've been in and out of it. Well, take hold of it today. Make the decision. I'm going to serve the Lord. The Lord has great rewards to bring into your life. Hallelujah.